edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. Um, a couple of months ago, uh, a sort of extraordinary event occurred when a mysterious, anonymous uh, Bitcoin millionaire who goes by Pine uh, announced the Pineapple Fund, which was something like uh, originally 86 million dollars to be given to charity um that amount has decreased as bitcoin itself has you know gone through its uh its various gyrations over the last couple of months but it uh, represented kind of an extraordinary uh, presence of a, a sort of different kind of money and a different kind of um uh, philanthropy uh the tagline for uh uh, the pineapple fund was because once you have enough money, money doesn't matter, which is kind of a cool idea and not one often shared by millionaires in our uh, current culture. Uh, in addition to the extraordinary generosity of the move, although we don't really know how much he actually has, so who knows what the percentage is, but it's still a pretty incredible number. Um, in in a couple of interviews, uh, the mysterious pine also uh, uh, made it clear that his uh, his vision of the Pineapple Fund uh, came to him while he was in a doctor's office um, uh, being, uh, undergoing a, uh, a ketamine, off-label ketamine therapy, uh, presumably for some sort of uh, mental health situation, which he also mentioned but did not go into, and that it was indeed the, was partly the uh, positive feelings, the the sense of possibility, the sense of uh, compassion and openness that uh, his experience with ketamine brought him uh, that led to the Pineapple Fund itself. So it's not surprising that some of the um, uh, charities that received cash uh, included some that were associated with psychoactives, including, of course, the uh, the the powerhouse multiple multiple disciplinary association of psychedelic studies, aka MAPS. Um, but another recipient of uh, two hundred and fifty thousand dollars was uh, uh, the Arrowwood website, the Arrowwood Project, the Arrowwood uh, Center, and I've been involved with uh, the Arrowwood group uh, per peripherally for a number of years, actually almost uh, almost twenty years now, and. Uh, full disclosure: My wife Jennifer is on the is on the board, so they're definitely uh, we're definitely in the fold. Um, and uh, you know, this was great news for us because uh, Airwood often has uh, a, a bit of a challenge raising money because the kind of work that they do, though it's extraordinarily important and unquestionably saves many many lives is uh, by its nature the fact that it's sort of an, an online encyclopedia of information that's constantly updated and constantly falling apart and constantly requiring uh, work and maintenance to just keep the thing going, given the extraordinary number of users and the extraordinary amount of information that they're dealing with, doesn't lend itself quite to the jazzy, uh, snazzy, uh, campaign-oriented fundraising that you see with, for example, MAPS. Uh, so this was great news uh, uh, for, for us Airwood fans. And then uh, Pine offered further to uh, provide $250,000 in matching funds. So uh, currently, uh, the Airwood is doing a fundraising drive for matching funds, and they're about halfway there. They, they've used about, there's about $122,000 uh, in matching funds still on the table. 
And there's 11 more days in the uh, campaign. I think it ends on uh, March 10th. So it seemed like a good time to uh, go back into Arrowwood World and and, uh, talk about some of their projects and some of the ways this uh, money will help uh, get them ready for the ever-expanding and ever-more-complex world of psychoactives in uh, postmodern society. Um, And we've spoken to Earth and Fire before on the show um, so this time I thought I, I talked to uh, another person who's been involved with the Airwood Project for a very long time and, and an old friend of mine as well, uh, Sylvia Tissen. And Sylvia's a, a senior editor at Airwood. And the, the main thing that she's responsible for is to manage the Experience Report Vault, which in some ways is the most uh, uh, wonderful, bizarre, poetic, and in some ways useful part of the Airwood website because it provides this extraordinary range of experience reports, um, which are themselves a kind of remarkable form of literature. I mean, what a trip report is kind of its own sort of writing. It's not like it's not like a dream. It's not like a, a memoir. It's not like, a, um, you know, a, a, a personal narrative. It's not like a fiction. It's not like a poem. It's not like a religious narrative. But somehow it's sort of a little bit of all of that. Um, because it's people trying to describe things that are almost by nature ineffable, uh, and in so doing, coming up with ways that collectively people can begin to map these spaces and so- come up with language um, to do so. And uh, Arrow has had a very uh, broad embrace of the kinds of um, uh, writing and approaches that people can have to reporting their experiences. And so I look forward to talking uh, to Sylvia about that, as well as other things that the Arrowwood folks are up to these days. So I think that about does it for me. So with no further ado, welcome to the show, Sylvia. <laughs> Thank you, Eric. It's good to be here. Hey, yeah. So when did, when did you start working for, for Arrowhead? And I think you had already been working with, uh, with some drug information sites or some other related um, groups before that. Yeah. So I've been part of the Arrowhead crew for 17 years. Um, it's a pretty small group of people, so I've been kind of at the core of that for that time. Uh, prior to that, I worked at MAPS in the 90s, actually, and then I moved out to California, and I started working with um, a couple of harm reduction and drug education groups in the Bay Area. And in 2001, I hooked up with the Arrowhead Project, and I started helping Fire and Earth, the co-founders, and um, after a couple of years, I did transition into where I am right now, which is managing the experience reports vaults and also um, a couple other volunteer-led projects. Because while the, the staff is quite small with, with Arrowhead, um, we have a lot of volunteers who are doing amazing work, super dedicated, and um, we're super grateful to, to all of them over the years because now we've been doing this. This is now our third decade. So there have been hundreds of people involved in this. On the volunteer yeah, and it, make, it, makes, it makes sense, too, because the, the kind of ethos that Arrowwood was, was born in was a, you know, a different era of the Internet. And if, if you, you, know, you were old enough to be around, then you remember it. And if not, uh, it's worth noting that there was, you know, a very strong sense of how communities could come together um, in small uh, underground ways uh, using the the internet in the 1990s and really maximize the kind of uh, collective intelligence that could emerge 
And, um, you know, there was a, a great deal of, of uh, sort of positivity about uh, how collective labor, including volunteer labor, could really help kind of build um, uh, public databases, build sensibilities, build new ways of seeing and, and navigating the world. And, you know, to some degree, those things still go on and, and people still turn to the Internet for similar things. But there was there was really a... Uh, a freshness and vivacity about it at that point, which I think Arrowwood continues to carry forward uh, into an, an era when, you know, maybe that's it's a little bit more difficult sometimes to maintain that kind of independence and that kind of reliance on uh, on volunteers, um, and also, be, you know, precisely because it, it's it's di sometimes difficult to maintain given the way in which other kinds of organizations are able to to fundraise. So. Um, yeah. So, I mean, how do you feel when you first heard about this, the pineapple uh, fund? Pretty cool, pretty cool stuff, right? <laughs> well, um, I, you know, in one of the interviews that this person did, um, they described how they fund charities that they trust. And um, I felt that was very encouraging for this project, that Arrowwood is in that circle of trust, because Arrowwood is a trusted name, trusted site, um, and have been for a long time. And so this kind of support is just going to really help us to bump things up a little bit and um, achieve some things that have been kind of in a holding pattern just because of lack of the kind of like support that this represents. We've been getting support every year, but that kind of bump up in support that happens when um, a philanthropist like this shows up and is also prompting other people to step up because donations from now until March 10th are being matched, um, it's it's really a unique opportunity. So I, I, I like I've been thinking about the word trust lately in respect no, to that. I'm really glad you brought that up because you know that's a huge huge issue now, and one of the things that's happened to you know the internet as a space of information, a space of learning, a, a kind of vast uh, chaotic encyclopedia is that there's much less trust than there used to be. Uh, in fact, there's active mistrust uh, for good reasons. And in that kind of environment, um, having a, a trusted name or brand, if you want to think about it that way, um, you know, is incredibly uh, important and, and, and powerful and, and uh, also, you know, speaks very well to the whole project. And, and indeed, um, you know, I've, I've been aware of all sorts of operations, institutions, magazines, uh, d academic disciplines, you know, all, you know, all those sort of various worlds of, of politics and performance and discourse that one, you know, runs across in, in a life. And I have to say that I, 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 and I've said this before, that there's, there's really nobody I have more respect for the ethical earnestness they bring to a lot of complex decisions as as the Arrowwood crew, as Earth and Fire. Um, and that's, you know, it's great that I think one of the reasons they still have such uh, a presence um, is 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 precisely because people trust them. And trust is a is, you know, it's a hard thing to maintain. And again, particularly uh, these days, and particularly about something like drug information, where there's going to be a lot of disinformation. There's always been tons of disinformation. In fact, the whole site sort of got going partly because there was so 
little uh, reliable information and so much disinformation coming from the DEA and other sort of, you know, mainstream uh, actors that the only way to combat it was to really be like, to be honest, <laughs> you know, to, you know, to live outside the law, you must be honest that they're living outside the law, but they're talking about things that are, that are outside the law and making sure that people who are outside the law are getting the right kind of information to keep them safe and to help them make the kinds of choices that we all have to have to make. So it's, I think it's a real marker of their integrity, uh, as well as the usefulness of the site. Um, that they they're getting this kind of recognition now, and they're still getting, uh, you know, so much so much support. Um, anyway, I want to talk about the experience uh, reports because they're they're just so cool. Yeah. You know, it's just such an interesting <laughs> genre, and I, people don't really think about it that way. Uh, that's how I do. I think about everything in writing as a kind of genre, whether it's like, you know, a tax report or a, a dissertation or whatever. There's all these just different ways we have of communicating. And there's something really remarkable about the experience report, as well as just being as, of course, being useful as, as a way of pooling people's information and getting some generalities that other people can use to navigate and make their own decisions. Um, so talk about when you, you know, is that something you started to do initially with the site? You know, how that's mm -hmm. changed? Just, I would just like to hear more about, about what it's like to, you know, have to edit and, and keep this huge flow going. I mean, I think mm -hmm. you have like posted like a thousand reports this year already. So there's, you know, it's a lot of material, uh, that's gotta be vetted and stuff. So, so just talk yeah. about the, the experience reports. Yeah. Well, yeah, you, you've said it, that experience reports are really kind of like this, this unique genre. Um, it's a genre that's not just useful for, you know, you could call them end users. It's also useful for people who are curious about what other people's experiences are or who um, are researchers and uh, want to learn more or who work in healthcare or who work um, in other kind of health professions like counselors and therapists, um, and we often hear that people are sending their clients to the site. So, um, so yeah, there's, it's a big topic. Um, we have had about 111,000 reports submitted um, since the beginning of this project, and in 2000, um, the year before I joined, uh, a, a formal system like a database was created to support um, processing this, the submissions of reports. And at that time, a submission form was designed with just nine fields, um, and uh, we didn't want to be uh, too, we didn't want to be too specific in what we were asking because we didn't want to control too much how people were going to say what they wanted to say about their experience. Um, but we did give guidelines about the kinds of things that ought to be in experience reports. So um, we've published about 20, 29,000 reports. And um, every day volunteers are going through reports and uh, vetting them. And um, other volunteers are going through them and publishing the ones that are vetted. So um, I don't know how much detail you want me to go into that process. Well, I, 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 am, I am curious because, you know, if you're, if you're not aware of the process, then sometimes I think you might think, oh, this is just every, every report they get, they put there. But obviously there's a lot of reports that you can't put for all. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, for example, um, 
I'll give a couple of examples. One, let's say uh, it's kind of important to keep tabs on the newer uh, research chemicals or novel psychoactive substances that are being used and that people are writing about. So we will expedite reports um, just by simple searches um, for things like um, deschloroketamine or uh, uh, MIPT or you know any any one of the alphabetamines. Um, also, some of the research chemical um, opioids. But we're also looking for keywords like, like for instance, we have a researcher friend who um, is interested in uh, autism spectrum conditions. So uh, we have a standing search for keywords that would uh, match Asperger's or autism. Um, so we're, we're expediting, expediting certain reports. We're not going through necessarily chronologically and reading all the reports as they come in day by day, but we're pretty much keeping on top of reports as they're coming in, and we're also using these keyword searches in order to do this expediting. Yeah, well, you, you mentioned working with this researcher about autism uh, keywords, and you know, that brings up the, the fact that the, the experience faults are a really remarkable resource for researchers. Um, and I know there's been some issues around how people have been using the, the, the vaults, and it's a real, you know, fascinating matter. You know, in a way, that's what's so funny about about a lot of these details is they're 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 kind of like librarian issues. You know, they have a little bit of that like data management thing. There's a sort of inherent, uh, you know, dryness about it, but because the material is so overwhelmingly bizarre and you know sometimes hilarious and sometimes harrowing and and so often fascinating, it's it's kind of funny to recognize that it's also like a very, you know, important uh, set of data and there has to be ways, there are better and worse ways of looking at it as a, as a way for researchers to get, to get broader understandings of what's happening right. in the drug culture, what's happening in, in, with, around certain substances, what's happening around how people language and how people think about them. So could you talk about some of the ways that, that researchers have used the vaults, both in a good and, and so, I know sometimes in an inelegant or even um, a kind of misunderstood way? Right. Well, um, yeah, data, data is definitely at the forefront during the training process because all the volunteers who work with this data set, and we call it a data set to them, is we are, we are training them to be looking for data. And sometimes a report might not be, like, elegantly written or particularly articulate, as long as it's somewhat intelligible. If there's data in it that someone's going to find useful, it will be considered publishable. So some of the um, ways that researchers have used um, this collection has been, like an example, determining um, some common negative health effects or positive physical or mental health benefits um, that users might uh, encounter, like for Kratom. Um, there was just a paper published uh, in Frontiers in Neuroscience comparing dream experiences to psychoactive drug experiences by doing a textual analysis on the vaults um, using latent semantic analysis. So they, uh, those researchers showed that psychedelic experiences are more similar to, to dreams than other drug experiences. Um, there is just a paper submitted uh, looking at differences in effects and outcomes of 
traditional and non-traditional settings for ayahuasca and other wasca experiences. Sometimes people are mixing and matching plants that have an MAOI and DMT that aren't the traditional ayahuasca plants. Um, there's a paper that's going to be coming that is using textual analysis of reports to try and compare the effects of a substance to what we know about its receptor binding. I think that sometimes a lot of people are really excited about that kind of work with the experience reports um, where, there's, where there's some challenges um, that, uh, that we're wanting to raise awareness about um, is when, for example, there are demographic differences that are showing up in reports that, um, that might be inappropriately attributed to drug effects. For example, if, you know, if most of the experience reports written for a particular drug are written by people in the you know, 16 to 21 range, that might look a little bit different than if reports for that same drug were being by, written by people in their later 20s or their early 30s. So, um, like, Amanita, Amanita muscaria and other Amanita mushroom reports um, have the highest average age for the report authors. It's 31, but the inhalant reports, the average age is more like 16. So you could see how just the way a report is written, regardless of what the effect of the drug is, is going to look a little bit different. So I think some, some, some researchers could use a little bit of help teasing that out, or it might not be possible to tease it out. So people really need to be a, a little bit aware of what the limitations of the data set are. But at the same time, there's so many exciting things that they can do with it. So that's, that's what's really cool about it. Well, what are some things since you've been, you know, handling these things at, at such a, you know, micro level for so long? What are some of the, you know, uh, research projects that people haven't done yet that you think might be really interesting, or that you could see already even patterns, even not even looking for them, just over the years you've noticed that there's certain interesting patterns, you know, whether it's about the, the experiences themselves or how people use language, or, or, or like, like you say here, issues about who's doing what drugs, what age, where they're coming from. Uh, you know, some of the sociological aspects of it. What are, what are some outstanding questions that you'd like to see people use the, the vaults for? Well, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step aside from that question for just a, a second, just to point out that, like, in terms of content, like, I kind of think about it a little bit, like, there's, like, visionary content that, I call it visionary content that shows up in an experience report, and a good example of that is, like, entity contact. Um, and then there's like the way that an experience report is written or how, how the experience is expressed, so more the form of the report. Um, there was just a book that came out um, by, by a researcher named Bruce Rimmel. I think you're familiar with his work, um, They Shimmer Within, where he um, has been looking at entity phenomena. So he includes excerpts from a few experience reports in his book. So that kind of that kind of work is really interesting. Um, I'm I, I think it'd be really cool if someone did research around the topic of time because there's a lot of keywords related to time that you could search for and then kind of go in and look at the phrases and see how people are talking about time because time is is often a, a theme that I see and I'm not exactly sure whether that's something that that um, 
anyone would be necessarily looking for. Um, like there, I don't know if you want to hear an experience report. Sure, after, sure, yeah. Um, um, but it, it's a, a good illustration of what I'm talking about, the kind of stuff that I that really jazzes me about experience reports. So here's the excerpt. I begin looping briefly through prior dissociative trips and come to the conclusion that time is cyclical, that I am everyone experiencing itself simultaneously, an idea that I know to be true, but only occasionally do I find it so plainly and experientially revealed. Yeah, that's, so that's, um, that's that you know that time is cyclical. I am everyone experiencing itself simultaneously. These are themes that are showing up across experience reports across substances, and that's kind of fun. That particular report, the author name is Indigo, and that report was for a desclerocetamine and four hydroxy MET. Um, but well, I like I like you actually your, your your focus on time. Uh, I I know someone a friend of mine who's writing his dissertation. It's an audacious dis- dissertation. He's comparing ideas of of time in uh, in Dzogchen. He's a he he's a Tibetan Buddhist scholar mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. Uh, with experiences of time or thoughts about time within the psychedelic context. And mm-hmm. one of the things that we've talked about is how little writing and how little thought there's been really specifically on the time question, even though it's so central. And one of the things that this also makes me think about this question of time is not just all of these remarkable otherworldly kinds of time that people can have, you know, the sort of eternal now or the sometimes rather distressing looping uh, or this sort of sense of things being cyclical and returning and stretching and all that kind of infinity and all this crazy stuff. But there's another side, which is that one of the markers of an experience report is that the vast majority of them, the individuals themselves, t- uh, report, you know, T1, T2, you know, they, they, they notate the development of their own experiences mm-hmm. using, uh, you know, conventional time marker, using the clock, which has become right. a kind of standard, if you will, for the experience reports that appear in Airwood and elsewhere, of course, as well. It's the most obvious thing to do. But what always struck me about that when you when you're reading these far out reports is that people are still there's still a part of them that's paying attention to the clock, partly because even as they go into these experiences, they want to keep a record that has some objective correlative and they want to do it partly to create a report that has some value beyond just their personal phenomenology. And that, to me, is already a really striking development within the way people approach their own drug experiences, that there's a valuable to keep something, you know, one little foot in or toe in, in clock time because it's valuable to come out the other end with something that you can organize according to a, a shared uh, time frame that way. Um, mm-hmm. it, was that something that like kind of developed on its own as people saw other people posting reports or did initially people, did you ever have to go back to people and say, Hey, do you have, do you have a sense of when this happened or how, how did that develop? Because it's such a common feature of reports now. Right. Well, um, that's a good question. I'm not exactly sure how to answer it. I do know that the timestamps are something that, uh, 
is a marker of kind of a better written report. Um, most most of the volunteers reading reports would agree with with me on that because we'll get frustrated because we'll look at a report and there's not really a sense of what the arc of the experience is. Um, and so uh, that has probably been something that has evolved because people are seeing that that is a way well, first of all, like you said, people are writing notes, and so they're keeping timestamps for themselves, and so they might as well put, put it in there. And also people just want to know how long is this going to last, how long is it going to take to come on. Um, so they, 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 do, they, they do have to pay attention to that. But um, I don't know. I don't know how, how that evolved. Fire and Earth might have a better answer. Um, they were there. At the beginning. At the beginning, of course. <laughs> at the so beginning. What, uh, one, uh, you know, more uh, pertinent question here is that how is the, the money that's coming in now, this sort of, uh, you know, w- wonderful windfall, um, going to uh, go into the experience vaults? I mean, uh, do you mm-hmm. have specific plans? Yeah, so of, this goes of, back to a little bit of answering the question that I dodged earlier. Um, we're really interested in increasing the number of reports by underrepresented populations. Um, and, you know, a, a boost in support like that is going to uh, help us promote this project and help it grow and build alliances with affinity, affinity groups. Um, there are people that might be less inclined to write an experience report um, or they're, you know, and so we, we want to kind of build tools that can make the process more accessible or there are, there are other organizations that are already gathering experience reports um, or who may reach out to their, um, their, their populations or their members and encourage people to write about their experiences because their voices are underrepresented. Um, for example, well, I mean, there's a couple of examples, but about 14% of reports that are published are written by people who self-identify as women. Um, around 6% are of the reports that we publish are by authors who have either declined to answer or have picked other. We added non-binary as a gender option last year. Um, it would be amazing to be able to um, build out um, a collection of reports um, by people who experience gender um, in a non-binary way. Um, and... Uh, Let's see what else. There's also age. Uh, we are really focused on having perspectives from people of all ages uh, represented in the vaults. So right now the median age of a report author is about 22, um, which means um, there's fewer reports for people in their 40s and older. So about 12% of reports are written by people um, who are 40 and older when they had the experience, because um, that's one of the fields that we only added in 2009. How old were you when you had this experience? So uh, it's going to allow us to um, to promote that kind of effort. Um, part of it is what we call the Wisdom Cycle, which is a project that we have um, we started in 2013 with the intention to collect knowledge um, over an entire life cycle so we can uh, have more semi-structured 
interviews or surveys that will add to the experience reports data um, that we can collect that uh, gives us like written, we just want to get get this data set like even richer than it is like more diversity more depth you know if we if we have if if you if you have ten reports for one substance and fourteen percent of the reports are written by a woman by women, that's not a lot of reports. So we want to bump up the numbers for all the substances, and then we'll get more representation. I'm focusing on women here, but that's only because that's like an easy, that's an easy data to get is percentage of gender. But it's actually you know people of color, people of all genders, um, people of all ages. Uh, what else? Intensity, subtle experiences are underrepresented in the experience reports. Um, it would be lovely to promote people writing reports about experiences that are underwhelming, for that matter, because I think that people are often motivated to share something that they've learned through um, an experience, and sometimes that those experiences are, are very challenging or they're just very, very exalting. And um, there's, there's also a lot to be learned from experiences that, that are subtle, subtler, um, uh, that's a very good yeah. point, yeah. And then, so the idea is that they would, there would be just more sort of promoting and creating mechanisms that would, that would sort of encourage this kind of information coming in. Yeah, that's in the department of the experience reports. But also, um, we it's going to allow us to facilitate, facilitate more research-related to experience reports. Also, um, we want to diversify the training of the volunteers, because right now the training is we've had complaints that it's a big wall of text. And, of course, you have to be able to read lots and lots and lots of text if you're willing to be an experience reports author, uh, excuse me, an experience report volunteer. Um, but at the same time, everybody appreciates some diversity in their training. Um, we'd also love to be able to do tutorials uh, and some teaching around how to write an experience report. Because re experience report writing isn't just a community service. It's also a tool for learning for oneself. Um, which is one of the more obvious reasons why people write down, you know, what they're experiencing is because they want to go back later and see what they may have learned. Um, and a really big thing that we want to do is um, a lot. So we've had reports that we've collected over many years now. Uh, we would love for even just a fraction of people who have previously written reports to write a report now 10 years later or however, however long after their original experience and share what did they learn? What has changed? Do they remember having written the experience report? Um, a lot of times you'll see in a report, my life changed or this amazing thing happened. It's, is, is that, is, is, does that persist? Did it, did it wane? What, what's changed? How did your life change? So, you know, a just, just more of that depth, some longitudinal data. Well, that's wonderful. I'm 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 looking forward to those those developments. I mean, it's already such an extraordinary uh, archive, and and I can just see all of that stuff just building on top of what's already uh, been accumulated and and the intelligence already there. But I, I wanted to talk about some of the other um, you know aspects of of, of Airwood's work that's all, that are also slated to get a nice boost uh, with. With the incoming cash, and uh, one mm -hmm. of those I, I know we've talked about before is 
is the, uh, the, the ecstasy data project, mm -hmm. um, which a lot of people don't even know is, is, is an Arrowhead project, or at least that Arrowhead provides the backbone of the whole operation. So for, for those who don't know, could you just talk a little bit about uh, what ecstasy data does? Yeah. Yeah, ecstasy data is a project that was started in 2001 that, um, that is entirely run by Arrowwood in terms of management and, like, interacting with the laboratory that we contract with that does this GCMS um, analysis of anonymous, anonymously submitted samples that people will send in through the mail with a copay to this lab in Sacramento, and that lab will test samples as long as the sample is dry, it's not wet or tacky, um, it's a tablet, is it a white powder, is it blotter, um, they will test the sample and we publish all those results. It's the only uh, a project of its kind in the United States, GCMS or Grass Chromatography Mass Spectroscopy. <laughs> is, well done. Um, that's a mouthful, is, um, is the gold standard for forensic toxicology. So there are a lot of other good tools for determining what's in your drug, but GCMS is, is kind of um, the, the kind of that, that, um, that the police use, for example, or, or that, 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 that are used in forensic studies. Um, that the, the budget of this project is $100,000 a year, so it's actually quite a, an important project, That one of our most important projects. I think that um, people don't necessarily know that it's an Arrowhead project because it does have a different URL. It's ecstasydata.org. What the Pineapple Fund support is going to um, allow us to finally do is, is uh, rebrand the project with Drugs Data, which... Um, is a name that is more appropriate to the kinds of samples that we're testing today. So in the early 2000s, all the samples that we tested were ecstasy tablets, and today more than half the samples are drugs other than ecstasy or MDMA or Molly or whatever you want to call it. Um, and there's there's more um, research chemicals and and uh, uh, psychedelics and pharmaceuticals, and people are obtaining pharmaceuticals in the gray market. In some cases, because um, their prescriptions are so expensive, they want to find more affordable ways to access um, drugs that they need. And uh, there, there's a lot of counterfeit drugs out there. It's not just MDMA tablets. It's not just white powders. It's also pharmaceuticals. So um, it's really unique because uh, even though we're not allowed um, by the rules that the lab has to follow um, that are... Um, determined by the DEA, we can't publish quantitative data about samples. We can't publish if there, how much MDMA is in a sample of MDMA, but we can publish if it's MDMA and if anything else is showing up in it that is a drug, like is it MDMA and methamphetamine or is it ketamine and methoxetamine? Um, those are the kinds of things that people can learn from using this service. So it's a public service. Um, in uh, uh, it's in you know we used to call it drug drug testing. Drug testing in the U.S. is sometimes conflated with the idea of urine testing. So we've adopted more of the European term drug checking. Um, 
and it's actually gaining more attention, um, not just in this niche field. A study just came out of Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health about drug checking as a means to address the opioid epidemic. So um, we want to be able to increase this project's funding to match the increase that drug checking is getting in the United States and abroad. And um, I think that having, having, this, having more funding is just going to help us promote this project and help it grow. It, for example, it can, it can potentially allow us to offer lower co-pays in some cases, which will help us increase the number of samples that we test every year. We're testing about 500 samples a year right now, and we'd like to be able to increase that. And bringing the cost down is going to help us increase that. The cost is pretty high. It's $125 per sample that we pay to the lab in direct costs. So right now we subsidize the co-pays. Um, for example, if someone has a tablet, they only pay $40. But in some cases, we'd like to be able to adjust the copay on an as-needed basis or if there's a public interest um, need to get a sample tested. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I, yeah. I can only imagine that, that this has is, is been made more urgent by by the opiate, opiate crisis and, and the fact that so much of this – these street opiates, they, you know, do they have fentanyl in them or not? I mean, there's, you know, really it's, you know, it's not just like whether your, uh, your Molly is actually, you know, caffeine and amphetamine. It's, it's like really life and life and death stuff. And that's presumably a lot of that population are not people who are, who are going to be thinking that they can even do this, you know, that this is even possible. Uh, you know, that's a, it's yeah. a different, a lot of these users are different than the sort of psychedelic oriented people that are more hip to Arrowit or, or to, to ecstasy data, or even because they're not even, oh, well, with ecstasy, who cares about that? I'm, 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 I'm on a different train here. Uh, so I can only yeah. imagine that that's really, uh, a, a, you know, increasingly, uh, valuable, uh, uh, practice there. Yeah. Yeah. So be looking for it. Drugs data. That's going to be the new name for this project. And, and then how, it's very how much the, one of the biggest projects how is that, that we run. Uh, legal? Like, what? What? How was that? Was that a lot of work to set up that possibility? Like, it, it it's almost strikes me as something that shouldn't that the DA wouldn't let at all happen at all. You mean even if they limit well, some of the information? Well, you know, I, there was a window of opportunity where it just it 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 happened, um, and um, it, it looks like no other labs can do quite what we're doing. So. Um, it got grandfathered in for some reason. I don't know the details of the the beginning of it, um, and it, it does it does raise that question: like, how is this possible? But um, it is possible, and we haven't gotten shut down, and we've been doing it for 17 years. So um, we're just going to keep doing it, and then there's going to there's going to be a big brouhaha if we get shut down. Um, but you know, these samples are going uh, anonymously through the mail. They go from the end user to the lab directly. The lab itself is completely licensed. It's a forensic toxicology lab. Um, amazing people work there that we're really grateful that they've worked with us over the years. Now, they, they, they photograph all our samples. They also do reagent tests. Um, they do reagent testing on all of our samples, which they don't do normally for samples. And this is a way that um, people can look at the photo um, of how four different reagents um, reacted to the sample. Um, so it has a little bit of a public education component to it with every single sample. 
um, yeah. Good stuff. Good it's stuff. A pretty cool sample. The, I'm really, the, I'm really excited about um, growing ecstasy data slash drugs data. Yeah, very much. And then another thing to talk about, you know, uh, uh, that Arrowhead's been uh, involved in uh, for a long time is the work, uh, is his historical work, you know, in a way like, you know, ecstasy data, the new drugs data dot org is a, is a way to address, you know, very real issues of, of counterfeit materials and, you know, really in your face public health issues and experience vaults allowed to, you know, develop a kind of contemporary archive of people's experiences as new drugs come down the pike, as people try to discover what's valuable, what's not valuable, um, and also kind of developing a shared language of of exploring these these dimensions. Uh, but Arrowwood also has a really really deep uh, historical um, investment, and what, that's again something that's always attracted me about it because I I'm very much a historian and I very much look at psychedelics and and uh, you know in terms of the history of the counterculture and then the broader history of how human beings have been engaging psychoactives for a long time, and particularly with uh, with Arrowhead is that they've been involved with a number of different projects that that are archiving or digitizing, uh, you know, paper archives of some, uh, you know, associated with some, you know, psychedelic notable figures and, uh, you know, including Myron Stoleroff. It was, it was an immense amount of, you know, material. It's a, it's a very painstaking thing to do. And it's the kind of thing that's usually done only by research universities that have the funds to be able to do that kind of archiving work because it's, it's again it's painstaking it's kind of tedious you got to do it right uh, and a lot of it's not exactly clear what it's useful what it's u- immediate use is so from a real like super pragmatic point of view people might go oh it's not worth it let's just go forward we don't it's all just you know a bunch of old files who cares maybe there's a few jewels in there but it's just not worth the effort but the the kind of archivist approach the, the people who appreciate history. Uh, and recognize its importance. It's like, no, 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 you don't know what's in there. You, and you don't know what kind of research questions other people are going to ask. So digitizing these things is incredibly um, important. And Arrowwood continues to do that with the with the Shulgin archives. So what what is the status of the, of the Shulgin archives? What's been digitized? What remains to be digitized? What kind of stuff is it? Um, how, how is that project ongoing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so as, as a chemist, uh, Alexander Shulgin kept lab books, and um, and he and and also collected uh, accounts of first-person experiences with some of these novel compounds um, that people shared with them. And so these were all collected in what are called the lab books. And for the last ten years, in partnership with Team Shulgin, um, we am through volunteers have been transcribing uh, Shulgin lab books and um, have been producing uh, searchable PDFs of uh, these lab books. And it's, it's kind of extraordinary. If you look at the original handwriting um, compared to the transcription, it's really interesting because these were the, the these can be hard to read, and the volunteers have developed this like uncanny ability to decipher um, Sasha's handwriting, which is really impressive. So um, we have Airway has committed at least twenty thousand dollars in two thousand eighteen to uh, continuing the project of 
digitizing and cataloging the uh, not just the lab books, which has been a project that's been underway, like I said, for 10 years, but also uh, papers and correspondence from the Shulgin's collections. Um, so we're really excited about that because uh, Alexander Shulgin and Anne Shulgin have been such an inspiration for so many people, and uh, Sasha's research interests are reflected in the way that he organized his files and the things that he collected and the people that he corresponded with. He corresponded with many, many, many people. So I think that um, we're only beginning to get a glimpse of what we could be learning through um, through understanding what's in the archives. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I that think that is one I of mean, them. It's all, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's also one of the, uh, you know, he's a kind of perfect person for Erwood to be doing this because when I think about, you know, Erwood's not just a repository of information or, you know, of, of, of uh, you know, an archive of, of even experience reports. It also has a kind of uh, kind of ethos. You know, I think one of the things about the experience reports when you read them you, is you start to realize that people who are doing this are reading other experience reports. And along with that, they're actually kind of picking up a certain kind of ethos about how one more productively approaches uh, issues of consciousness and chemistry. And um, and part of that ethos is, of course, really rooted in a kind of uh, science nerd geekery. It's a, it's a real respect for, for hard data, for the kinds of questions that science scientists ask, and for importing some of that critical probing curiosity, um, that mixture of kind of skepticism and, and openness to surprise uh, into the whole, you know, endeavor of exploring uh, psychoactive states. Um, so it's, it, you know, he's he's very much sort of a, a Shulkin's very much a, a kind of, you know, um, sort of presiding uh, sort of figure uh, over the, the the Arrowwood Enterprise in general. It, it seems to me, and then and a lot of the other stuff that it, that you guys have paid attention to is also kind of on that that sort of science tip. There's there's a, a sense of bringing that into what maybe previously was seen from the outside and even from many people on the inside of, of, of drug using uh, subcultures as something that was, you know, either hedonistic and wild or as, you know, totally otherworldly and mystical. Uh, and those, you know, those two things are also true. Um, but there is a, a, a really crucial vein that I think is becoming more and more articulated uh, by younger people in particular these days and by other groups that are doing, you know, online things that are doing um, similar projects to, to Arrowhead, but in a different vein, uh, that really emphasizes this kind of uh, the, 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 the positive, the efficacy of having a, a, your, your inner geek along with your inner shaman uh, exploring these realms. And, you know, Shulgin is the kind of great example of that kind of consciousness explorer in a scientific uh, critical, curious vein. So it's it's really right. great that 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 work continues, and that there, as you say, you we can learn more about that whole approach just by understanding how he thought about science, how he organized his notebooks and such. So it's again more than just you know merely historical uh, interest. Yeah, and it's more than just merely about the drugs themselves. I mean, Sasha and Anne. I have a mish, I have a mashup of a quotation that I made from um, 
quotes from PCOL and TCOL that came from the both of them, and it goes like this. Different drugs may sometimes open different doors in a person, but all of those doors lead out of the same unconscious. Once you are through those doors, what you encounter is part of yourself. And that, that drug geek ethos that you alluded to, the know your body, know your mind, know your substance, know your source, which is an Arrowhead motto, it's really about where are you at with it? What, what's going on in yourself? And um, is it appropriate to be you know, introducing a new element into the body right now? Um, and that, that kind of geekery um, that was exemplified in PCOL and TCOL, which is the access that people have to, to a lot of Sasha and Anne's writings, um, is, uh, is really alive today. Um, and and Airwood is really exemplifying that. Yeah, that very ethos. much. And then, and for you, what 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 else about that that ethos? I mean, it's it's how else would you talk about the sort of flavor of the Airwood approach to these things that that is part of its mission, and maybe not as obvious as the as the data or or providing information or even encouraging people to become more thoughtful and informed about both their body and the, the, the drugs that they're, they're choosing to use. Um, but, you know, how, how else have you come to feel or even find your own way or the way in which your own experience expresses this ethos in the way you approach your, your work? Um, you know, how, what, what is some of that maybe less tangible but still really crucial part of the Arrowhead mission that, that makes it singular uh, today? Well, I mean, if you think ahead... If you think ahead and you think that eventually we'll be having we'll be having conversations like this about mood and mindset, independent of whether a chemical or plant is ingested. I, I know I keep coming back to this, but like we're, the technology is here. It's it, the technology is going to be increasingly available, where you can dial in a mood or an experience. So we need to be having these conversations about what does that mean to twiddle those knobs on consciousness and what, like, what, like, help each other and raise awareness, um, not just individually but societally, but about how consciousness um, is something that's around us all the time that we're, we just want to be um, to tuning, tuning into more. Um, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but... Yeah, no, I mean, I, I that, just, that's a, I really keep it, coming that, back to that. that. Totally it's like, it's the, I mean, think about all the like experiences one can have on the Natch with even just meditation. That's another thing I'd like to do is increase the number of experience reports we have on meditation. Um, yeah, it's not, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's psychoactives are everywhere. It's everything. <laughs> that's a little yeah, bit. No, um, it is true. I mean, I, I've Earth said that. I've heard him say that many times. You know, it's just it's, the whole thing is psychoactive, and 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 indeed, in a way, I think I, I think you're right that in the future we will look back at drug culture now as being a kind of petri dish where people begin to wrestle with the consequences of being able to significantly and radically change consciousness through you know, outside intervention, and then also the ways in which it's not plug and play, that there's always slipperiness and, and problems and potentials that aren't even initially recognized right off the bat. 
uh, in terms of how the thing is sold or what kind of ideas it has. Oh, this is a fun party drug, and it turns out to be a, you know, a psyche shattering journey to your childhood, you know, programming. And you're like, well, I wasn't really up for that. I mean, you, we we also because consciousness is is involved. There's always sort of an extra dimension to whatever's going on. It's never simply plug and play. But as you say. We're going into this where it's going to be quite visibly outside of the mere domain of drugs. So in a way, it's like funny how drugs both help focus these questions, but then also kind of can get in the way because they lead people to think that everything else is different, even food or, you know, common drugs like caffeine and and nicotine, you know, Mm -hmm. people don't quite think about in the same way, even though, of course, they're all part uh, part of the same the same big psychoactive story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, I think we uh, we need to wrap up here. So, uh, Sylvia Tissen, senior editor at Arrowwood, thanks so much for your time. And again, we have uh, ten more days of this uh, remarkable pineapple fund matching fund for for Arrowwood. I think there's about a hundred and twenty two thousand dollars of matching funds still sitting there on the table. So uh, if you've ever used it, Airwit, or want to check it out and see whether you think it's worthwhile, please do so. And it'll be obvious on uh, airwood.org uh, how you can um, how you can contribute. So anything else from you, uh, Sylvia? No, no. Thanks so much, Eric. It's been wonderful talking with you about all this. Yeah, great. I've, I've been watching you do this for so long. It's really wonderful to get some more of your thoughts about it. All right, folks, uh, till next week, keep your minds open. Mm-hmm.